I don't know how you rush trust without having some vulnerable and critical conversations. Maybe that is a bit of a hack, but coming from a neurodivergent place, insofar as I am neurodivergent, I feel like being able to build trust with a wide variety of neurodiverse individuals can make you a pretty awesome CISO or cybersecurity leader. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Chris Nolke, multi-time CISO and founder of Skycrane, who spent decades in cybersecurity before burnout led him to start his own company. As a neurodivergent leader and lifelong learner, Chris navigates the workplace with a complex balance of candor, vulnerability, and self-reflection. Now he's sharing his outlook on the system of happiness and his methodology for achieving it. There is no universal path to fulfillment in life or in work. So which values should drive your career decisions? What's the best way to deliver and receive feedback? And how can vulnerability serve you or harm you in the workplace? Chris, thank you so much for being here. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Chris Nolke. I am the founder of Skycrane, a cybersecurity advisory company. And I've been a CISO for a little while and a cybersecurity professional for a number of decades. So I thought you were going to use the term expert, which I hold in general contempt, even though they are there are such things. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I don't think I'm an expert on anything. Don't worry. I, I will not profess being an expert on anything. If I come up with something I'm an expert on, it might be so esoteric and unimportant to the podcast. I'll, I'll keep it to myself. For an industry that is still so young and largely lacks universal definitions of good, I'm surprised at how often I see the term expert used, typically in speakers' bios and other annoying things. But professional, I'm very happy with that. It's all about me being happy. So I appreciate that, Chris. What did you do? How did you get your start on the security front? Well, I went to school in Alaska, University of Alaska Fairbanks, and got a degree in electrical engineering. And that was, I graduated in the 1994-ish time frame and was immediately hired by a inside the Beltway defense industrial base type company to help with satellite communication as a kind of a project engineer. That didn't go for very long before I encountered TCP IP, which was kind of a new cool thing. And that didn't go for long before I encountered firewalls and some of the other things that need to be done over satellite communications like encryption and stuff like that. And I hope and well, I profess to be and hope I will always be a lifelong learner. And I have 
always struggled in positions where I get bored or I'm not learning any longer. And so I kind of followed the most interesting path and the one that came with the most pay in some cases. And that led pretty quickly in the late 90s to cybersecurity as a broader career. So that's that's what brought me to the fold. So you were still putting yourself in a non-security box despite doing communications work, firewall work, and working in the defense industry. You still didn't sort of label yourself yet as that being an infosec phase. Is that accurate? I'm trying to remember when the idea of labeling yourself as an information security professional came to be, but I was probably well into the concept of network engineering and a network engineer in the dot-coms before I could market myself as an information security professional. I don't know that there would have been somebody to market myself to, if that made any sense. There were, you could be really good at securing a three-tier web stack but you would call yourself a web architect or something of the sort in 96, 97, 98 in order to get the best work. I went and got my CCIE. I'm going to struggle Cisco certified internetworks expert or something like that to make more money. And they did not yet have a security offshoot that was to come in the future. But, you know, it's it's a series of, and maybe we'll talk about this regularly, cybersecurity, behind cybersecurity is a series of concepts that are relatively straightforward and are easy to understand, I think, by a majority of people. I think that I'd say, at least in my experience, in 2000, I was at a Fortune Financial one or 200, I think, ish. And they had a fairly defined, certainly a networking team, but also an InfoSec team. So at least by then, I mean, that's kind of when I started working, sort of getting a W-2 in, in the technology space. But I think it kind of depended on, you know, there was staff that had that title, at least in the Midwest in that era. But I think that from your point, especially with the CCIE of that era, probably on a track to make a lot more money, especially with a CCIE at that point. Certainly much more in demand. That's true, but temporary, right? So I think 99, I got my first cybersecurity. We didn't call it cybersecurity. That's relatively recent. Information security title would have been at drcoop.com. At the same time, I was moonlighting first five, six, seven different dot-com companies. MarthaStewart.com was one of them, funny enough, providing their kind of three-tier web stack. And ultimately, a lot of what a lot of the professionals or managers wanted out of somebody with a CCIE was educational help to help them get Cisco certifications so that they could, they could improve their career. So I spent about half my time training people or, or doing internetworking and about half my time training people. But my day job became specific to information security at drcoop.com in 1999 or so. 
And it's never been back. I've never had a non-information security related job since 1999, I guess. A little bit of a deviation here where I was going to take the conversation, but you mentioned earlier, one of the best things we can do, I think, with this show or any other maybe is uh, help the listener maybe make decisions or recognize opportunities. And you talked about your own career. You talked about, you, had, you said something, you know, finding the most interesting path. And I think that path is still sort of being defined today. You know, for you, you're doing some stuff on your own and you know, you're making videos on LinkedIn and such. But defining the most interesting path is different for everyone. But what's your sort of construct for that? Yeah. So I, I wish I had done a values exercise earlier in my career. And I think Brene Brown has a good one. You can just Google Brene Brown values. But more or less, it's a, you're going to spend a couple weeks going through exercises to define what your values are. And I don't think after late youth, kind of your, your early 20s, I don't think short of some type of trauma, your values change much. And so I would encourage anybody, regardless of where they are in their career, to consider some type of process, whether it's Brene Brown or, or, or another, where they spend some time discovering what their values are. And having those written down on paper can allow you to be more deliberate about how you will make choices. And for me, it was a real wake up that. I had self-improvement, which was a way of talking about learning, in my top three values. And I had always been behaving as such, but, you know, we make choices dynamically. Hey, this job versus that job. Is it a cool-looking company? Do my friends work there? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There might be prestige. There might be any number of reasons why you might make one factor decision over another. But I think if you're more in touch with your values, you can make a more consistent, better series of career decisions in your life. I have always followed a path of more learning and more discovery. I want to you know, preface that with that the ability to do that has been shockingly privileged. So I'm not, I'm not going to go through this podcast completely oblivious to the fact that I'm speaking in an extraordinarily privileged way. So I, I do want to mention that. But insofar as I have been privileged enough to make decisions in my life where I have a more interesting or more learning potential, if I go left versus right, I will almost always go left. Interesting. Is that based on the culture of the company, the skills required to do the job? Is that like, what are you picking in that process? Or is it completely outside of that? Well, I think you probably hit the nail on the head with skills to do the job. But, you know, from the beginning, you have to make a pretty wild guess about what you think the job is going to be based on the information you have at the time. And I think we've all started jobs that turned out to be far different than we expected. In fact, I might even go so far as to say I don't know of a single job that turned out to be what I expected. So one's desire to stay in a job or where to take that job. You know, I had a early, early, early in my defense industrial base company at Hughes. I was traveling all the time, but I had an offer 
in the dot coms, we get a lot of job offers. I had an offer from MCI, funny enough, MCI WorldCom, and they wanted me to come over and Hughes countered with some money. And I said, tell you what, I will stay naturally for the money, but also I want the ability to take classes in Unix, TCP IP. There were like two or three other items because I had got, I'd felt relatively, after two or three years of constant travel, I'd felt relatively pigeonholed. Like I was stuck, like I was doing the same things. And so those skills, you know, that I think my employer kind of looked at me funny, like that's not what you do. You don't work on Unix. We use Vax. Those are the days, you know, et cetera. And I said, I know, but I, this is my conditions. If you want me to stay, I'm going to learn those things. And boy, I've used the snot out of Unix and TCP IP since, since I learned it, you know, in those classes that I, that might be slightly illustrative, I hope, of, of your question. Yeah, it, it is. I think it's, I just finished a call right before this recording now, trying to help a very bright young man kind of wade through these decisions of life. And the topic was, you know, he's two years in to his career and he's trying to figure out kind of what his North Star is. And, and some are telling him to kind of copy his career, find a person to copy the career after, and then go, then work toward that. And I kind of cautioned him a little bit against that and say, instead, you have to sort of develop these decision-making processes or these constructs. And it could be the difference between happiness and fulfillment. It could be values, as you mentioned. It could be even thinking as granular as what, what makes up your ideal day. And you and I talked about that before, and that was a product of trauma on my end. And so you have these things that you may want to work toward, but understanding these building blocks, they're related, but they're also disconnected, and you don't want to chase something that's really not you. And that's a very difficult thing, especially for for young people today. It was difficult for me trying to figure out what path I wanted to go down. One of the subjects we got into is somebody discussed, and I think rightfully so, a little bit of brand, and not brand like we think of today, but if somebody thinks of your name that's close to you, or even who has worked with you, you know, what comes to mind when it comes to your personal characteristics and your abilities? And so we were exploring this together, and I I'll, guess I'll use this kind of unplanned question, but if, if someone were to have a kind of three bullet points about you, Chris, and we're giving you maybe giving me or somebody listening an answer of, you know, what's Chris like? You know, could he help us solve this problem? Or, you know, what might he solve best? What might they say on those three bullet points? Yeah, I think we'll, oh, well, I was thought of, this is the pie model. I think you start with performance and then you add an image and you, you deliberately, whether you want to or not, have an image, a brand. And then to add to that and to get any, to create options in your career, you want some kind of exposure to senior management so that they will consider you for, for roles and allow you the leverage to make, to go in the direction you want. But if I think about my brand, I know what I want it to be, but if I think about what it probably is, we talked for a minute about being an expert, but expertise is probably something that dominates what a lot of 
people who know me well at work think of. And I don't say that as a boast, because I'll get to why that's not all as important as I wish it was, or, you know, but a lot of people have said, you know, in, in couching feedback, oftentimes feedback is given in the uh, in sort of a, what feedback professionals call a, a poop sandwich, I guess, to say it nicely. But, you know, where you say something nice, then you give them the real feedback, then you try and leave them with another third nice thing. And it's disingenuous. I don't think it's especially helpful. Just give the person the candid and well-thought-out feedback and, and let them think about it. You don't have to put it in this poop sandwich. But, you know, one of the things they always start out with on the poop sandwich is, hey, clearly you understand everything here. I mean, clearly cybersecurity, you're an expert. Clearly, you know, the technical stuff, you know everything you need to know. And then they move on to their feedback their consider, right? So I think one of the items of my brand is probably, you know, that I I technically, as a learner, I understand and I'm one of the original full stack guys, right? So, you know, in school, we had to learn assembly language and how assembly language is built in processors based on binary signals and then taking that all the way up through compilers and language and applications. So, I think I've always attempted to be somewhat of a full stack. I think that's getting harder and harder or more impossible, especially if you add leadership and people to the top. But I, I, I would say my first thing is I would hope that I'm an expert in the subject matter, subject matter expert, to use your expert word. The next thing I would, I think that I have in my brand is that I believe in bringing a lot of vulnerability and candor to work. And if I think about my peers or the folks that I led or even the folks that I worked for, I always tried to have conversations that were extraordinarily human. And in many cases, I don't know that that was ideal, either for my own comfort or their comfort, or getting what I wanted out of the out of the conversation, et cetera, et cetera. But I always defaulted towards a more human. Hey, this is how I feel, and so this is what I believe, and so this is what I'm doing, kind of thing. And if you can help me understand what you feel or what I'm doing is resulting in you feeling maybe we can have a more constructive conversation. I think part of my brand is having a a much, much more personal conversation than usual. I didn't grow up in a time when they had the term ADHD, but I think if you were to go down the list of sort of typical ADHD symptoms, pretty extreme. And I tend to use conversations to connect with people. The downside of that is that I can be pretty impulsive about that. And in my mind, I'm having a vulnerable conversation or something, but I might say something or I might continue to say things, continue to talk, et cetera, that leave me in a place that doesn't always, you know, I can walk away with some pretty heavy shame going, hey, that, I just talked that person's ear off. 
So I suspect part of my brand is being pretty talkative. And so if I think about maybe that's the top three, so I would say I have a lot of expertise. I tend to come to conversations with a lot of vulnerability, and I probably am a pretty talkative guy. I would say that's probably my three. I think one of the things that, first off, your point about bringing vulnerability to work, I actually think that's a, a an extraordinarily good leadership trait. And the way I'd use that as in an example is describing all the times in life where you feel uncertain or insecure. And I have done that repeatedly in team building, in coaching. And I think that it doesn't get, those things don't get shared enough. We put ourselves on a pedestal. Others put us on a pedestal. You get a title that becomes your identity. You're kind of walled off a little bit. I see it all the time. And just describing where you're uncomfortable, but also telling people, this is what I'm not great at, but this is why I need others around me that are, that are different and great at other things. And it's a bit of self-awareness where I jokingly say, but it's the truth, is I'm only really good at like two things, but I'm really good at those two things. And so that awareness, you know, I'm average at a bunch of other stuff and I'm shit at a bunch of other things. But putting together a team of people that supports that or understands it first, they see that perspective, that humility of the leader. And this sounds maybe too soft and, and squishy and not as business driven as it should be, but I've never had it hurt me unless there was someone who was so full of malice, it didn't matter what I said. Yeah, I've had it hurt me. And I, you know, to the point that it's changed my career. And I, I will say, though, that if you're going to go out there and be vulnerable, you are, as a, as a very risk-aware person, I think probably you and I and almost everybody listening to this podcast as cybersecurity or information security people, we have a relationship with risk in our life for one reason or the other. And for me to get relatively vulnerable, I am watching the risk. And sometimes that risk has worked out poorly for me. And I have been vulnerable or been candid with people and didn't in ways that didn't work out. Now, that's not to say I have regrets, because if you watch somebody that curates their vulnerability to reduce the risk, I don't think it can be maintained in the long term both from a bandwidth perspective, I'm just not that mindful. I'm just not that brilliant at curating vulnerability in some authentic way that I would ever think I'd get away with it. But also, I, I just, it's, it's too much work. And so I continue to default towards being vulnerable, but I, I would go so far as to say it's kicked my ass a few times. I want to go there. Uh, here in just a, a second, I, I was getting ready to draw maybe a separation because I th I think I, I don't believe I know I, I I'm making an assumption. You'll you'll correct me if I'm wrong, please. But I think being someone who will share again, I think it's the process of knowing who you are as a leader and describing that situation of here is how I feel. Here is what I'm maybe not as good at. Here's on what I'm working, right? Here's all these things about my journey. I think people want to be around typically leaders that do that. Now you can get caught in a trick bag. 
and and I think you said it there. I think maybe you can. Could you overshare? Certainly. Could you go down a rabbit hole on a topic? Absolutely. Could you let that topic dominate a discussion when other work needed to occur, maybe more urgently, and it puts someone off? Maybe. So I think you, we have to be mindful of that. But I'm, I've always had, in my own past, I, for a long time, I wasn't known as the most, <laughs> maybe I'm still this way, not the most friendly person. But a lot of that was a product of my own sort of, I don't know, self-hate, but it was certainly insecurity. And we talked about trauma and things that happened in my, in my past life. There are these, as we spoke of, you know, whether it's a coping mechanism or something else, but these attributes. And so working on that to be not only better for yourself first, but then also to try to be a, a qualified leader, team builder, and someone who gives a damn about their staff, it's a hell of a ride. And so I do want to cover, I just want to say that to kind of say that I think I know what could have happened based on our, our earlier chat. And I'd like for you to give an example. You know, the, the statement you made, which I loved, is something to the effect of, I don't, I don't remember verbatim what it was, but it was something to the effect of, you could have gone a hell of a lot further if you'd say less. And I laugh at that, but I've had it said to me too before. So I was like, this is actually really good. So maybe we start there, like the saying less piece. What's the effect of maybe paint the scenario around that and then let's give the cautionary tale. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the things that oftentimes people do, you know, when they have an impulsive communication is, is that's their method of reaching out to connect with other people. And, 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 you know, you, you learn at a certain point in life, whether it's something that comes from your parents, in my case, it did not, I had to, you know, learn the hard way when I was in my twenties and thirties that impact and intention are not the same thing. And so I may intend what I've shared and how I've felt or whatever it is with somebody with a entirely friendly and virtuous and et cetera intention, but they may receive it or it may have an impact that is that is otherwise. And I'm not talking about just something that's just straight up stupid where you're talking about it personal attraction at work or anything like that. I'm not. But there are a, a number of occasions, particularly with other experts, where I've said, hey, this is, you know, I'm really afraid of this thing. And I really, I'm scared and I'm not really comfortable in this place. And I would really, I'm just going to resist everything I can to not go left here with our, some of our decisions. But it comes off as unseemly and it's pretty you know, I have regrets. And in, in a number of cases, I think, you know, I've had manage, I've had a, a boss that I very much admire who straight up told me, Chris, as, as, as I mentioned to you, hey, Chris, you'd go a hell of a lot further if you talked a hell of a lot less. And he didn't put that one in a poop sandwich. He just straight up looked at me in the eye and, you know, gave it to me. And I appreciate that because I, I really do value that kind of feedback. Sometimes, the feedback hits in a way where you've heard it a number of times and it you have to kind of go through a shame hangover of, well, I know that and I can't figure out how to change and I'm doing the best I can. But, you know, we bring to work, Jerry Kalana said this, we bring to work as our dominant 
decision making may uh, kind of process the survival skills we learned as kids and that's just how we're raised and what we bring to work and in many cases those decision making processes don't serve us well no better than any other survival skill learned in childhood might and i think that for me that is a step by step understanding of all the risk around me in everything i do primarily edge risk and that is a way to walk through the universe that is not necessarily comfortable or helpful or any number of things but one it does kind of direct you towards something like cybersecurity where a constant understanding of all the edge risk in your universe can become a professional trait through pattern recognition or whatever you get better growing up doing. The other thing, though, is that you can become a bit of a feedback junkie because you are looking for perceptual risk. Where is their unspoken feelings? Where is there an uns- something you don't understand that everyone else knows about you? These can be seen as pretty deep edge risks that can be very high impact, even insofar as they're low likelihood. And so grounding out feedback in many cases can be a risk mitigation strategy. Is there, and you may not have something sort of ready-made for this, but I feel obligated to ask, you're describing elements of your career journey, you know, looking at the effect of ADHD or however you personally label or whatever feedback you've received and kind of how that plays into your career and decision-making and you just said feedback loops. It's a topic that's sort of more at the surface now in general. I think SANS even has a weekend or a week event that's all on neurodivergence in information security. You know, we we tend to have that. Uh, you know, I fall into this category myself and it's it's interesting. I keep it kind of at an individual sort of element of work. I, I generally don't talk much about it, but if you had some advice for other security leaders or CISOs that through their hiring or team development or mentorship or coaching, you know, they come across folks that, you know, may may act on some of the behaviors you describe and, you know, they're trying to give great advice. You mentioned getting, you know, kind of straight talk from a, someone you admire, but is there any advice in general that you'd have for those leaders who might not know what to do or might be struggling? Like, how does that otherwise good person that sometimes, you know, needs a little more coaching, what advice do you have? Mm-hmm. I think you have to build the relationships in which you can talk about that kind of thing with some degree of authenticity and take the risk of bringing it up and saying, hey, I'm you know, as a leader, one of the things that you can look at is neurodiversity in your cybersecurity team is a superpower. And I say that as somebody who has felt oftentimes I can see into the matrix, to use too uh, cliche there, too cliche of a term, but I can see into the matrix of risk with an enormous amount of information 
at relatively high fidelity. But I can't, I can't in turn communicate or quantify that in ways that are especially helpful. And a good portion of my career has been trying to figure out ways to quantify or to explain or to translate the things that feel obvious when you can pattern recognize risks within a larger matrix of an organization's IT infrastructure. If you can harness that power across your team in the right places, a similar ability to feel into the complex pattern of your information systems at your company, really get to the base level of of detail and then draw out from it the significant risks without getting caught up in in sort of going too far down the edge risk. You can build an incredible cybersecurity team that is very good at what it does, regardless of how, not say regardless, but with less regard as to the resources and the bandwidth that the rest of the IT team gives you. So the question that you had insofar as like, how do we, I would say you have to build very deliberate relationships with peers to talk about how that to understand how that neurodivergence is serving you or hurting you or a superpower you want to let flourish or something that perhaps you want to be mindful of, knowing that there is some mental health risk all along, kind of there's a there's an edge. You're going to be skirting along the edge of some stuff that if you're not mindful of and if you don't have a good in my opinion and in my own regimen, a relatively solid mindfulness practice, you're going to get really close to the edge of. But having those conversations allows you to come to better terms with your own understanding, be more mindful, and be a better leader to a team of cybersecurity individuals that you do also want neurodivergence on. I think. One of the ways is giving genuine and sincere appreciation for what people are great at. And then as time goes on, also letting them know, like, look, you were excellent at this. And this, I wouldn't want anyone or very many people to use this, you know, don't quote me verbatim. I know no one who listens will, but it's, you're, you're fantastic at this and you nailed this, but you're, you're shit at this other thing, right? And we need to make sure that for your career progression and that for your general happiness, I can keep you focused on the stuff you're great at. And the piece, the next piece of this, we're going to find someone else who's great at that phase of explaining this or articulating it or whatever, so we can all win. And I've had that very same talk. And I, I had an old manager, we would say the movie, The Sixth Sense, the little kid says, I see dead people, which is just what this kid is able to, to gather in from his surroundings. And the joke, it was sort of a joke, I think that if there's one thing or one of maybe the two things I'm good at is seeing those scenarios before they happen of where someone's likely to step on their own toe or their, you know, and stub their, stub their toe and ruin the message. Do great research, but flub the delivery. And so with the description that you just shared, it's extremely true. Yeah, we, we call those considers. And I think that Again, I talked earlier about the values exercise of understanding what's really important to you. I think knowing or trying to help a person on your staff 
understand their values will also give you a better ability to help lead them and give them feedback that matters in a language that is kind towards their yeah their values so you could you could say look consider now if somebody if their value is winning i'm just going to make up that value right if their value is winning they're a very competitive person you may say look i'm going to couch this in terms of helping you win and you're taking steps backwards away from winning when consider that you might be in a better position to win if you spent less time or accentuated this thing or did less of this or whatever it is that you're doing i want to see you win i want to see you achieve your what what's important to you, your goals and your values but i think that this thing is is in my perspective and have some kind of relatively objective example of saying for instance in this particular scenario what i saw was a the result i saw was b and so consider that in the future and uh, maybe we'll you'll be better at winning winning's not one of my values but that's just an example of how to how to speak to somebody for whom it is certainly i think the fun example i'll give and i haven't seen the third one yet but i need to guardians of the galaxy i had a a friend and a coworker Toby Hendricks described a team that we together built described as sort of the Guardians of the Galaxy kind of scenario. And if you if you look at this the show and and I I really love it is there's these this great team a collection of people that have just terrible character flaws each of them but find a way to sort of make it work and have success and do sort of absurd things for good seemingly and also have the ability to add new folks right the team grows right and changes so i find that uh he gave that example and uh i I think of it often he told me that almost seven years ago now and i think about it often so well we all hate that book the speed of trust but there's something to be said for trust right so we're all human we all have an enormous number of flaws i'm probably one of the more flawed among them but insofar as others work well with me and I work well with others, it's not in spite of our flaws, it's probably as a product of our trust. The thing that you say there that's interesting is the ability to quickly incorporate others. And I don't know how you rush trust and without having some vulnerable and critical conversations. Maybe that is a bit of a hack. But Coming from a neurodivergent place, insofar as I am neurodivergent, I don't know, but I feel like building trust, being able to build trust with a wide variety of neurodiverse individuals can make you a pretty awesome CISO or cybersecurity leader. We often use the phrase CISO, but I always think of little O CISO, big O CISO. There's the big O CISO is an actually an officer of the company, and little O CISO is a cybersecurity leader. And I think both of those are on a spectrum somewhere, and they all, you know, I would imagine 95% of the skills and things like that are the same. But as you get to be a big O CISO, you're spending a lot more time on leadership and managing upwards and 
a lot less time on cybersecurity. And as a little O CISO, you're probably accountable for a far greater degree of cybersecurity specific outcomes rather than leadership and managing upwards outcomes. I want to cover, uh, there's a couple more things I want to cover here. One is you mentioned in an earlier conversation just happiness in general as a subject. And I know this gets maybe out of the maybe out of the, the, the core of being a CISO, uh, at least on the surface, but I'm always fascinated with the subject of happiness. I, I think it's a question in our life and in our career that we very rarely think about or even ask. People would ask, you know, how's work, how are the kids, whatever, but they won't say, are you happy? Right? That's the question you're very likely never to receive. I will weigh happiness against fulfillment. Um, I think fulfillment is a complementary idea, more directed in the career light, I think, but both apply. What's your sort of assessment? What's your uh, thesis on on happiness as it relates to being a security professional and just in life? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of CISOs, particularly if you've been in the business for 20 or 30 years, is having come from sort of a full stack background, there's a little bit of hubris in the idea that we we've never met a system we didn't we couldn't eventually somewhat understand. And happiness or the construct that that describes has been a system that has always fascinated me, particularly as somebody who struggled with mental health, right? Because I've 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 experienced firsthand a deep lack of it while objectively understanding I'm one of the luckiest people quite literally in history that from a Stoic standpoint, and I do believe I do really love the Stoics. From a Stoic standpoint, you know, 99.999% of people in the history of the human race would look at what I can do with this rectangle of knowledge in my hand and talking to you on the other side of the country and being able to get in a metal tube and go to far places. They would assume I'm a god. And yet we find ourselves unhappy, right? In, in some cases, acutely and deeply unhappy. And so what is happiness? I think happiness, in so far as I can work out, is a bit of a construct. And that construct is in some cases made up of joy. Joy is, there's a great example of the difference of happiness and joy is a jet ski. A jet ski can bring joy. But if you drive along some of the lakes in Texas, you realize that in the long term, jet skis become liabilities, <laughs> do not bring happiness. There's a lot of sun bleached jet skis and ragged covers and broken glyphs for jet skis and stuff like that all over because people just stop using them. But they bring joy. Like the first time you use a jet ski, you get out there and you're just like, oh my God, this is really fun, but it's very temporary. And I think that. On the other end of that, from joy is contentment, and you've used the word fulfillment, and I like I like that as well. I think that's a that's an analog. But contentment is not acute; it is not a feeling in the moment, but it's an overall comfort that essentially feels like from here I do not want what I haven't gotten. The immortal words of Sinead O'Connor. And so balancing where do you get contentment versus where do you get joy and how do you get enough of each that you build a construct of happiness? 
I, like anyone, has has spent too much time on, on various hedonic treadmills. Well, you know, I'm I, I think to friends and maybe to unfortunately to a professional degree as well. I'm known as, you know, the guy with who has a, a real car hobby, an automotive hobby, and particularly pre-pandemic, an extremely expensive car hobby. Fortunately, the pandemic has relieved that quite a bit by making the cars that I, I owned worth a ton more. And so I'm able to kind of do more with what I have, and it's less of a treadmill. But for the most part, and that's how my wife and I met, that's how I have three boys, three sons, and we spend a lot of time doing car things, whether it's spending time at the track, spending time working on them. They enjoy them quite a bit. I've been very lucky. Nobody's kind of rebelled and taken their father aside and said, Dad, I just have to tell you, I really just don't like cars. I haven't had that experience yet, so it may be coming. But I, I'm, I'm really into that car thing. But I recognize, as I think, as I get older, that there's a true hedonic treadmill. There is quite literally no end. You always have somebody who's got more, who's got faster, who's got more interesting, who's having better experiences. And yet, from a Buddhist or a, a Stoic perspective, there are very specific things you can do with your money, with your time, with your effort, with your bandwidth, etc., to create contentment. And I think that a cybersecurity professional needs to have a very deliberate contentment and happiness practice. Otherwise, the professional necessities of getting in that matrix and looking at edge risk and walking around every day particularly as you spend more and more time managing people and leading people and getting away from the subject matter excellence. You have got to have a happiness practice. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. I burnt out. I chose to do, I was extremely lucky in the timing of my drastic burnout. And that gave me the ability to, hey, I can now go start a company and do something entirely new from a learning perspective and bring great fulfillment to myself by bringing cybersecurity to a large number of companies and people that don't easily have it today. And that is extremely, I'm enormously privileged. Again, I recognize it. I see it as I walk around with it. I understand that I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to be able to do that. But to be able to start a company and say, like, that soft underbelly of critical infrastructure, small to medium-sized companies that don't have cybersecurity staff, but really badly can affect the livelihood of our community if they don't maintain reliability, that's the market with which I'm going to go out there and make a big difference to. And so that's why I started Skycrane, and it Skycrane came to be out of a happiness practice and burnout when I did not, in fact, attend successfully to my happiness practice. So we could talk all day about Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. And Love me some Seneca. I do just want to say one thing about Seneca. Seneca was... This, this dude was practical. You know, we think of sort of the Greek Stoics as 
he's sort of standing there with an olive, you know, with a large branch sort of philosophizing in the town square. Seneca was an actual senator in who was trying to figure out how to do pragmatic things in a functioning society. This was not some dude who was waxing philosophical. This is somebody who's trying to understand how to... Marcus Aurelius is one of the last great actual working Roman premiers or, or, or heads of the state. And these two, the two you mentioned, Aurelius and Seneca, really have written down some incredibly good practical... There's, but there's been others. There's William Irvine. There's others... Sam Harris, et cetera, that have done a lot of work to help make Stoicism a practical process that can help CISOs become, because it's, it almost seems to speak to cybersecurity leaders, uh, very serenity prayer based, right? You know, it's, it's a serenity prayer in a, in a philosophy, and it can be very helpful to people in cybersecurity. I was just going to say that it's talking about the things that you can and cannot control, which is just what you referenced, right? Yeah, no question. I've got one more question for you, and it's a, a question we, we close on. Pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, and, and, uh, or, or maybe uh, the new Stoic, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Well, I'm going to take a slight curve where I'm going to talk about something different. When I think of the new CISO, what companies, boards, and groups of officers, because I'm going to think, I'm going to talk a little bit about big OCSO, but I also mean to some degree the little OCSO, what they need and what can be incredibly fulfilling and stave off burnout for CISOs is to create a practice of business relevant cybersecurity. And I've written a, a post on LinkedIn, and this is something I believe very strongly in. I think the greatest certification a CISO can ever get is an MBA, because understanding what the business as an entity needs on a daily basis, whether it's confidentiality, integrity, or availability out of the cybersecurity function, is a business question. And we do not need to be monks on a high hill with books that no one else reads quoting scripture. We need to be in the boardroom assisting the business in being competitive, in being an ongoing concern, and unfortunately, to a large degree in a capitalistic society, winning and making money. And I think there's something to be said for a new CISO is a business person first and a cybersecurity expert second. Excellent advice. Thank you so much for making time for us today, Chris. No problem. I love it, Steve. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful set of questions as well. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.